If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Throughout its 92-year history, the FIFA Men's World Cup has delivered its fair share of iconic moments. From the dazzling exploits of Pelé and Johan Cruyff to Maradona's Hand of God, it's a tournament with a rich and often controversial history, which can often tell us about changes in politics and society over the 20th century, as well as just football. On the eve of this year's World Cup in Qatar, John Bulcombe caught up with the sports historian Professor Matthew Taylor, who answered listener questions about the origins of the tournament, its relationship with politics and its overall impact on the beautiful game. To kick off, as it were, I want to go back well over 100 years, long before the very first World Cup. When was the first international football match actually played? Well, I think most records would show that it's uh, a game that took place in 1872 between Scotland and England. So it took place at the West of Scotland cricket ground in Glasgow. Not the most exciting match, probably, because it was a nil-nil draw. But, you know, quite reasonably popular, about 4,000 people attended. There were a few kind of unofficial matches which took a place before that. They're sometimes called the Allcock Internationals, which took place in London. But they were, gen- they were basically organised by members of the English FA and they involved English players against Scots who lived in London. So they weren't representative matches right. in the same way as we understand them. So that's the game we would normally kind of say was the first international match. But then, you know, over time you had, you know, the first matches between, for instance, Austria and Hungary, two of the big kind of early footballing powerhouses um, in um, the early 20th century, kind of both part of the same empire, of course, at the time, and Uruguay and Argentina played around 1902. So you then began to have, you know, lots of teams kind of entering the fray in terms of international football, I suppose. Yeah. And and who actually came up with the idea of hosting like an international tournament then? There were lots of kind of attempts and ideas, I suppose we could say. We could say that it came out of that first Scotland-England game was the first international tournament of sorts, what we, I suppose, call the Home International Championships. But at the time, it was called the British International Championships. So certainly they thought it was international. And that lasted from about 1883 for pretty much 100 years to to, to the 1980s. And then you had lots of tournaments, um, kind of club-based tournaments, a number of them kind of based in Italy. There was an interesting tournament called the Chiasso Cup, which was based in Switzerland, um, which actually apparently included the first derby match between the two uh, Milanese sides. So AC Milan and Inter Milan played their first match in Switzerland. And you had the Thomas Lipton um, Trophy, 
which uh, is famously won by the amateur side West Auckland against um, a number of, uh, uh, took place in Turin, uh, Italian, Swiss and German teams. And sometimes that's regarded in 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 Britain and certainly parts of the Northeast as the kind of first world championship. But the actual idea for the World Cup as it developed was right there at the, uh, at the birth of FIFA, the governing body of football, um, when they were established in 1904. And um, one of their kind of, main aims was to create an international tournament. So there were plans uh, within a few years. The idea was to create um, a 16-nation international tournament. It didn't get off the ground because of finances and other things. And, and kind of then uh, what, do, what happened is that the football competition of the Olympics took its place for a while until the idea came back again in the late 1920s. Fascinating. And, I mean, just as kind of as a more general question about this period... Uh, with the spread of football, like how, how does colonialism fit into that? And that's a question that was submitted on Instagram by Idle Vignette. Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. It's a big question because obviously patterns of, of, of colonialism are kind of really important for understanding the, the way in which sport diffuses and spreads throughout the world in terms of lots of different imperial powers. Uh, and it's certainly important for understanding, for instance, you know, sports like cricket and rugby and why certain parts of the world play those sports football's football's a, a slightly more complex one because we have to look at the informal empire as well as the formal empire so if we connect this up with the way in which the world cup develops the the kind of two big blocks in the world cup uh, certainly early on are europe and south america and the spread of football to south america tends not to be through the formal empire but through um kind of trade and business links from the British, but not just the British. I mean, the British were very important in terms of railways and things like that. And so there were lots of, there was significant British communities in places like Buenos Aires and elsewhere, but others as well. The Italian community in parts of South America, Germans were very important in the kind of founding of clubs in various parts of South America. So it's kind of a complex pattern. I think colonialism kind of tells us something. And then we get, when we get later in the in the 20th century and look at the rise of, for instance, the, 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 the French-speaking African nations. A lot of that is explained by the significance of, of football as a form of education, but also in, in its promotion by missionaries. But early on, I think, you know, we have to recognise that, that actually uh, colonial, colonialism is an aspect of it, but there are all sorts of networks that are, that are emerging in the late 19th and early 20th century, which are allowing cultural practices such as football to, to develop and spread. Yeah, indeed. And you mentioned the Olympics. I mean, how, how do we get from those Olympic football finals to then work the first World Cup in 1930? What's that process? It takes a bit of time, but it really is kind of linked to the fact that they become in the 1920s very, very popular, those football tournaments, partly because there is no, you know, there, there's no other competition. They become, as nations are, are getting better at, at football, are playing more, it, it becomes a much more competitive. So the early... The early Olympic tournaments, which are kind of serious, I suppose, in, in 1908 and 1912, Great Britain teams win it, and kind of amateur teams entirely, and, and the question of amateurism and professionalism is, is an important factor. But then when we get to the 1920s, when you, um, Uruguay play in their first tournament in 1924, they're just, in, they're just incredible. Yeah. They're just very good, and, and the quality of the Uruguayan side... Um, really impresses. It's, it takes place in, in in Paris, so the French journalists are are completely, uh, you know, bowled over 
by the, the how good the Uruguayans are. Something like kind of 60,000, I think, go to the final against Switzerland. And then, and then four years later in Amsterdam, I think it's a great statistic, which some, which indicates that and there's two matches take place. I think there's a, there's a replay that happened quite often. And then the second match between Uruguay and Argentina, apparently something like a quarter of the male population of, of the Netherlands applied for tickets. So it's, you know, so this was clearly incredibly popular and FIFA recognised this. And so there were some conflicts over, over definitions of amateurism uh, and the British football associations had, had kind of, you know, stepped outside FIFA and weren't interested in the... Um, in the Olympic tournaments, because they thought, well, lots of the teams that were competing were kind of professionals, and so FIFA just decided, well, let's let's just let's just create our own tournament, which is entirely independent of the Olympics. And yeah, and, it, and it's held in Uruguay, and it's won by Uruguay. I mean, why why were they such a special team then? I think a number of factors. I think they're a talented team. They are. Oh, we could get to debates about um, the teams that. That don't attend like the, like the British teams, but they're probably the best team in the world through the twenties and you know into into the early thirties. Lots of really good players who a number of who kind of years later also go on to play in Europe. So that kind of that kind of um, link uh, is beginning early on. They described. I mean, I mentioned this uh, finally in 1924. They're described in a great phrase by the, the French journalist uh, Gabriel Hano, as he says, like these Uruguayan players are like. Arab thoroughbreds compared to the farm horses of the English. Now, the English aren't playing in that final. They're not even playing. But Hanno is kind of thinking about the English, particularly who kind of consider themselves the best the best in the world. And he said, these, these are different sorts of players, incredible skill, incredible kind of elegance in the way that they play. They also have some... Some star players like, such as uh, Andrade. Now, Andrade was one of the first black players to play. Uh, um, Uruguay had black players in its team from, from the first Copa America in, in 1916. And so he kind of becomes a kind of important uh, symbol of the nation, but also of a, a nation which is possibly more diverse in it, 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 its um, approach to it, to, to various communities. And so I think that's all an important factor. But I also think the example of Uruguay in 1930 is the first really clear sign in this kind of major tournament of a nation connecting football to a kind of notion of national identity. Uruguay is a small, a small nation. It's not known, in, you know, particularly in Europe particularly well. And football is its means of portraying a, a positive idea of the nation. And that's incredibly powerful um, in, in terms of uh, Uruguay in this period in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, and I've got a question here from Martin Jones on Twitter, and I think you, you know him personally, which is, would any of the British teams have won it if they'd bothered to enter in the 1930s? Yeah, so so Martin Jones' um, question, that's an, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's very difficult to answer, kind of counterfactual history. I think my answer would be possibly, but probably not. And the, and the reason I say that is that um, the reason they didn't enter is because they weren't, they weren't members of FIFA, and at the time, they, there wasn't a great deal of um, coverage, you know, in the British press of these tournaments, which were, which were seen as fairly marginal affairs. I think one of the reasons why um, they mm, probably wouldn't have won one of these tournaments is um, the British teams were uh, fairly good 
at playing at home, but they weren't very good travellers. Um, uh, the English, who who played, uh, who tended to actually play more in, particularly in continental Europe in the 1930s, I think they played. They ended up playing about 20 matches throughout the that decade. Um, they they lost a fair proportion of those. I think they lost seven or eight of those matches, uh, including against some of the best teams. In, in Europe, so they would well, they would win at home famous matches in 32, 1932 when they beat the Austrian Wunder team at home. They beat um, the Italians, uh, who were the World Cup champions in high at Highbury in 1934. But in early 1934, they lost away before the the, the World Cup uh, in Italy. They lost away at Hungary and Czechoslovakia, so they lost a fair number of games. The selection for the um, British sides tended to not be very consistent. So different players would be would be picked for different games. And so uh, a lot of players who played in these matches, you know, you, you'd have a you'd have you'd have a match, uh, a kind of big international match, and a number of players were playing their first game for England. So they weren't necessarily very experienced. I would say, however, if we think about a team that would possibly have won, it wouldn't necessarily have been England. Wales were very strong. In the 1930s, they won a number of the home international championships and extremely competitive in their matches against uh, England and Scotland. However, again, we had the issue that they just didn't travel. I think their first uh, match away in continental Europe was uh, in 1931 against France. So they just didn't have the experience of playing away from um, home soil. Yeah, fascinating. And I've got a question here from Tommy O'Mac on Instagram, which is, what was Mussolini's role at the 1934 World Cup? And this is the World Cup, um, it's held in Italy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting one because I think um, historians who have kind of worked closely on this and kind of Italian historians and those who are working on, you know, the archives and things like that, kind of slowly, kind of slowly uncovering this. It was very important for the, the fascist party. It's sometimes seen as Mussolini's World Cup because he kind of recognised its significance. I t- you know, I talked earlier about how significant um, the World Cup was seen for the projection of the of the Uruguayan nation. You know, Mussolini realised how significant putting on this World Cup was and showing that that um, Italy was a, a modern, progressive in certain respects nation, which could put on an, an event like this in a range of stadia. Across Italy, because in Uruguay, the first World Cup just took place in one city, in Montevideo. So this took place uh, throughout Italy and some very new stadia, which were, which were built specially for, for the event and, um, you know, a kind of uh, very welcoming approach to the international media and things like that. So I think he recognised how significant this was, this could be, both in Italy and abroad in terms of projecting the, the, the notion of the Italian nation. <laughs> then there are questions around <laughs> the selection of referees, the question of possible fixing of matches, which I think is far too complicated to go into, but there were certainly cases where I think, um, let's just say, lots of people involved in the World Cup from the officials of the, uh, you know, the Italian officials who who organised it, to the referees, to the Italian players, were aware that Mussolini very much wanted Italy to win this World Cup, uh, and um, there was pressure on them, I think. And there are you know, some interesting, you know, evidence been been found about you know the possible um, 
uh, you know, pressure particularly put on, put on particular uh, on particular referees uh, during certain matches. So, so clearly, um, he was involved, and he saw that it was significant, and it was very important for for fascist Italy. Yeah, I mean, in a similar vein, then the 1930s is obviously marked by the the rise of Nazi Germany. The 1938 tournaments held in France. How how had the rise of Nazism affected the game by then? Um, well, I think the main impact on the World Cup and on leading international football was the fact that after the Anschluss, the Austrian team was obviously merged into a greater German nation and became part of the German side. Now, that was significant, obviously, for all sorts of human reasons. But it was um, it was significant in kind of sporting terms because Austria were one of the one of the teams of the of the 1930s. So I mentioned that the, the kind of wonder team of the early 1930s. They still had lots of really good players, very competitive, probably a better team than Germany around about that time. And so it was a, a key moment where where um, you know the the Austrian the idea was that the uh, German side would include a kind of mixture of Austrian and, and German players. I think in the first match, there were five Austrian, six Germans, but some key figures didn't play. Uh, Matthias Sindler, who was probably the most famous uh, member of that Austrian team, chose, you know, d- just refused to play for a team representing Nazi Germany and, um, uh, and, and didn't, you know, play international football ever again. And so, yeah, that had a significant, that did have a significant impact. I think Germany weren't strong enough at this point to win the tournament, so it wasn't going to have that much of an impact in that sense. But I think that was important as well. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the World Cup doesn't take place again until 1950. Um, it's held in Brazil, Uruguay win again. By now, like, who were the dominant teams in the 50s then? after the war? Well, I would have to mention Uruguay. And the reason I'd mention Uruguay just to start off with is that um, their record, you know, by 50 was quite extraordinary because they kind of played in in 30 and, and hadn't played in the next two World Cups and then played in, in 50. So it's pretty much 100% record. So they would have been cons- considered a very strong side and they continued to be strong in the 50s. But I think there was another team that never won the World Cup who were probably the strongest team in the 1950s and that was that was Hungary, the so-called kind of golden team or the magnificent Magyars, the various kind of terms that are used. Their records is incredible. It's something like, um, I mean, I think from 1950 to, to 56, they're unbeaten except in one match, which is the 1954 World Cup final. And, and in amongst that, they beat some of the best teams in the world. They become Olympic champions because they're theoretically kind of amateur players. They have these very, very famous victories that the British football will know over England in, in Wembley in 1953 when they when they win 6-3 and kind of absolutely, you know, completely uh, dazzle the watching English journalists, but also kind of players who are watching and kind of really send a signal to the rest of the world. Even more important was the next year, they beat England 7-1 at home. You know, so this was these were the, this was no fluke. This was an incredible side who clearly were playing a brand of football which was far beyond what the uh, the masters of football in inverted commas um, were were able to to produce. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that it was an incredible side, but but it was just extraordinary in a sense again that that in this in this upset in. Um, in Switzerland in 1954, all these games have got these great, these great um, their names linked to them. The Miracle of Bern, this is called. So you know, it's just it was a game that the West Germans were never going to win, supposedly. Not a bad side, but 
Hungarians have got this incredible record and scored lots and lots of goals in the group matches and were on a, I think, on a sodden pitch, a bit of, you know, slightly unlucky, slight poor performance from a couple of players. They lost the one match amongst 50 or 60 in that period. But they were an incredible team. And I think they're still, from the people who do this sort of statistical analysis, which is not not what I do, I think they're still regarded, that period, that Hungarian team of that period, probably as the best international team of all time. Yeah. And I want to go back to sort of specifically the 1950 World Cup. There's a famous 1-0 defeat uh, of England by the USA, isn't there? Was that seen as a huge upset at the time? That's an interesting one because it is one of these cases, and I think you get this a lot in football as you do in other sports and in other, you know, in other, uh, other things as well, where it, the legend of it is almost more, you know, that becomes uh, the, the, the kind of mythical element of, you know, uh, the impact this event had. It was a shock. Unquestionably, it was a shock because... England went to Brazil as one of the favourites. They'd not played in the World Cup before, but even so, um, they were still recognised as one of the one of the best sides in the world. Up to this point, hadn't lost at home, you know, very, very strong, and and had actually been very strong during the 1940s. It's difficult to to make a judgment in the war years, but a very strong English team during during the war. And they were playing against USA, who were considered to be not to be a nation who, who played football and so so that what it, it was a surprise that that they lost and there was quite a lot of acrimony from from parts of the of the popular press in in England but only for a short time I would say in in some ways the reaction was fairly muted partly because international football probably still didn't mean a great deal in Britain generally and in, in England specifically at that time you know that we hadn't got to a point where Everyone followed very closely the fortunes of the national team and were glued to a radio or, a te- you know, later a television um, to, to, watch, to watch how they did. So the domestic game very much dominated things. So, yeah, it was a shock, but, you know, it, it, it probably didn't matter to a great number of people. Uh, a few years later, the Hungarian defeat probably made people realise that, yeah, we, we probably aren't <laughs> the best in the world. So if we want to do something about this, we perhaps need to rethink certain aspects of the game. But it didn't really change for many years the the fact that domestic football in, in Britain generally um, d- did dominate, I think. Sure. I mean, what's interesting also about the 1950 tournament as well is there wasn't actually like a proper final, was there? No, it was this... I mean, I think people still talk about that final game as the final. It was effectively the final, no. But, I mean, what what the Brazilian organisers, as far as I understand it, decided to do was to kind of maximise revenue in the second round by having a kind of round-robin, a kind of group in the the second round so they had kind of more games rather than just a knockout competition. And and what happened was the the Brazilian side were very successful in their in their games. Um, Uruguay were good as well, but I think they drew one of those. So we came to the final match, which was effectively the final. But the Brazilians could afford to um, draw that match, and they'd have won the World Cup. So in that sense, it wasn't quite the same as a, a, a as a conventional final because they'd have won on points if they'd have if they'd have drawn the match. And to everyone's surprise, they didn't do so and this perhaps is a case where the legend is justified because uh, the impact of that match was very significant I think on individuals and on on a sense of the kind of Brazilian national psyche because there was very much an expectation that Brazil would 
were one of the best sides of the world, they would kind of, again, show where they'd reached as a nation and their kind of, um, and that they were very much a modern nation and um, football was a way of doing that. And it was incredibly surprising to pe- people that they didn't win. They went 1-0 up in the match and conceded goals towards the end. And it had an incredible impact. This was played in the Maracanã Stadium, which was the, the this great stadium, biggest stadium in the world. But it meant that, you know, certain things, the Brazilian side also played, I mean, we recognise them now as playing in their in their yellow kit. They played in white. After this match, they never played in white again. So, um, you know, it, it kind of was almost a refresh after that. And the World Cup still became the goal that, that um, um, Brazilians would kind of aim for, even more so. But it's, it's kind of regarded as this kind of the, the, the fateful final in Brazil, kind of a really significant moment, as I say, in the national psyche. Yeah, I think it's been described as like the nation's greatest tragedy or something. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, quite unbelievable. I've got a very general question about um, this post-war period, which is, you know, how had football tactics and formations changed by this time? And you know, how different were they to today? Well, I think tactics had had developed um, over time. I mean, if we if we talk firstly about tactics and the approach to the game, I think what had happened over time, and we'd kind of got there certainly, I think, by the late fifties and early early sixties, is uh, preparation and more kind of professional in inverted commas kind of preparation uh, to football had 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 developed and emerged. And again, it, it certainly wasn't the British who were at the forefront of this, that you have to prepare for, a, for a, a major tournament, for instance. You have to kind of get players together. You have to work on what people eat, you know, how you train people individually. Those sorts of things were being very seriously considered by countries like Brazil, who were at the forefront of that, by the Hungarians, who are, you know, in the very successful countries. So I think that that element of preparation was very important. Tactically, what we'd moved from, I think, is a game which was uh, much more based on attacking football early on, in the, certainly in the early um, World Cups. I mean, probably the best example of this, if people know the book, a really good book by Jonathan Wilson called Inverting the Pyramid, which basically, so if you think of the formation of, of, of a football team as a pyramid, a 2-3-5 formation was the traditional way of um, teams organising. And over time, his argument is that that became inverted and there was a, a move towards more defensive football. But this took place in stages. And so you had what was what was called the kind of WM formation, which would be kind of popular and um, towards the later part of the 30s, but still popular in in Britain uh, after, after the war, where you'd basically remove the inside forwards and they'd come back a little bit and, and the, the, um, some, of the, some of the defenders would kind of move up as well to kind of form almost a four in midfield. So those, were, that, those kind of things were developing over time. Um, and I think the Hungarians, as I mentioned before, were at the forefront of a lot of this. I mean, one of their kind of key initiatives was... I mean, we might call it now the false nine, but certainly the the kind of deep lying, a, a kind of deep lying centre forward. Hidakuti was played that role, and part of the reason for that was you had traditional, often big, strong centre forwards, and teams were getting very good at marking these players. And so, how do you get space? And one way you can get space is just kind of pull that the the, the forward um, further back onto the pitch. And that they would then gain space, make it difficult for the centre-backs 
not knowing who to pick up and things like that. And that was one of the things that was key for the Hungarians. But another thing was that they played a very fluid form of football. Formations had previously been a lot more rigid. You know, players had stuck to where they were meant to be playing. But um, the Hungarians certainly adopted a a form of football where actually uh, players like Pushkas and others, you know, were allowed to roam a fair amount. A kind of early form of total football, which was then um, developed further by the, the Netherlands team in the 1970s. Yeah, and we'll come to total football in just a bit. But I want to jump now to the 1962 World Cup, which is held in Chile. And that's memorable for quite a quite a violent game known as the Battle of Santiago. Can you just describe what that was? Yeah, so <laughs> very interesting moment and one that people will you know will often associate with with the World Cup. Um it had its origins in a visit actually by a delegation of Italian journalists to Chile, I think kind of a year or slightly more than a year before the World Cup. And the journalists were very critical of the of aspects of the preparation of the World Cup. They didn't think that you know the, uh, the Chileans were were ready for it in terms of the construction of the stadium. But the criticism meant, went much beyond that. You know, they they went to to um, uh, various parts of, of Santiago and parts of Chile, and you know, were critical of uh, the living conditions of people, people living in shanty towns, even to the the extent that they were kind of commenting on on allegedly how unattractive the Chilean women were. So incredibly insulting. Um, uh, you know, uh, reports which were uh, which came out in the in Italian press and not surprisingly were then reprinted um, in Chile, and so that that kind of laid the basis for a very tense atmosphere because the two teams were playing in a group match, um, and uh, the atmosphere was was terrible from the start. There was unrest uh, in the crowd. The, the, the crowd were throwing um, stones and food and obviously insults uh, at the, at the um, Italian players. And it led, it kind of then led to, to violence on the pitch. So um, Italian player Giorgio Farini um, was sent off, but then refused to leave the pitch. And, kind of, and the English referee, Ken Aston, probably hadn't experienced this in in, in a, a refereeing in the football league didn't know what to do um then there was a very famous kind of you know basically a, a straight up fight between one of the Itali- uh, italian and, and chilean players uh the italian was guy was sent off the, the chile chile player wasn't um but it was it, it had just got completely out of hand and and the referee had lost control and he got to the the point where the police were were kind of escorting the two italian players who had been sent off off the pitch so and this was also by 62 the reports of this and and later the the images of it kind of were spread around the world so bbc for instance kind of said you know what a disgraceful you know disgraceful behavior this is kind of completely unacceptable in a tournament which is supposedly a kind of showcase for the beautiful game these sorts of things so so yeah that that was that was incredibly significant and then had a knock-on effect not surprisingly on to a degree on relations between you know italian communities uh in chile you know so there was quite a lot of uh, unrest for for a few years on the basis of that so yeah so that was you know very, very infamous and and quite important yeah and it's funny you mentioned ken aston there because he isn't he the referee that invented red and yellow cards 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, this was possibly one of the things which uh, which might have might have given him the idea. But also, I suppose, uh, in in uh, four years later, in '66, the famous moment when uh, the match when uh, uh, England played Argentina and Ratin didn't leave the pitch. So again, it was a uh, when he was sent off, and there was supposed to be communication problems and things like that. He then came across the idea of actually let's have a, a symbol that everyone will understand, whatever language people speak. You know, a red and yellow card, and that will be a lot clearer and players will know when they have to leave the pitch so yes his experiences in 62 he wasn't refereeing in 66 but he was in he was kind of in charge of the referees led Aston to just to, to come up with this idea still to come on the history extra podcast certainly within Scotland but not just in Scotland the Scots were highly fancied there was a feeling that you know possibly possibly with the with a bit of luck and the you know you know the the wind behind the sails that they could they could go far possibly win it we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed now, I've got a question here from Ali Louisa on Instagram, and I think this is a reference to 66, but the question is, has the World Cup trophy ever been stolen? Oh, yeah. yeah. So maybe we're talking about pickles here. Yeah. <laughs> um, although it's not the only example. So, yeah, um, it is, I, think, I suppose, still one of the one of the lists of key things that people uh, know about the 1966 World Cup, um, it, both, both in the UK and elsewhere. So, yeah, the... the, the the World Cup, the Jules Rimet Trophy, um, which was the cup at the time, not the not the current one, was being um, exhibited, I think, at Westminster Central Hall, and it was uh, stolen and found, I think, around about a week later, kind of at the bottom of someone's garden in in part of South London, by 
the, we never remember the person the, the, the person who owned the dog, but by, <laughs> by, by a dog called Pickles, who then became a kind of global celebrity in a sense. So, so yeah, that was one of the key moments. It was, it was, however, the Jules Rimet Trophy. Four years later, when Brazil won their third World Cup, they got to keep the Jules Rimet Trophy. So from 1974, there was a new trophy, the World Cup Trophy, which is now the one we have. Although... I think pretty much it's always replicas that we see and the actual trophy is, is kept hidden away. But obviously the Jules Rimet trophy then became the property of the, the Brazilian Federation. And so um, it, it was kept by the Brazilian Federation until it was stolen. Yeah, it's melted down, wasn't it? Or something. Yeah, we think people think it was melted down, stolen in 1983 and, uh, and supposedly melted down. And so, yeah, so it was stolen twice. And uh, second time, never found. There was no, there was no Brazilian pickles to find. <laughs> no Brazilian pickles. Brilliant. So yeah, with apologies to non-England fans, d- talking about the World Cup in 1966. I mean, why was that so special? I mean, obviously for England fans, it it's always going to be special. But was was there anything about the way it was marketed and like the TV coverage? I think there were some interesting things about aspects of the of the television coverage. It was. Um, the first uh, World Cup, which was included uh, matches which were kind of broadcast by satellite um, to other parts of the world, particularly through the, the European agreements through Eurovision to parts of parts of, 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 of continental Europe, but also Mexico. In Mexico, you know, a number of the matches were, were shown live, for instance, which was which was quite interesting and quite important. In terms of the marketing and the aspects linked to that, you had the arrival of one of the first World Cup mascots and actually one of the first mascots in related to any sporting event to extent kind of well uh, well well known perhaps in 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 england world cup willie the kind of comical lion who who was kind of adorned a lot of you know the programs and various other aspects as well so and also it kind of led to a song by which was sung by lonnie donegan which uh, did well in the charts about world cup willie so so you know there were these elements which were then followed uh, followed later which uh, which were uh, you know established first during the the kind of marketing of the 66 world cup and then we come to 1970 and it's really famous for that brazil team which is which are considered like the greatest team ever aren't they why did they resonate with so many people yeah i mean at the heart of it is the fact that they were incredibly good and incredibly talented and played a form of football which seemed uninhibited. So I think although, you know, that that without that, other things wouldn't have happened. But it coincided with a number of other things as well. This was a World Cup, which again, there were developments in broadcasting. So uh, the 66 World Cup, you know, generally took, took place in black and white. A lot of people... Not everyone, but a lot of people who had colour television would have witnessed um, the 70 World Cup in, cl- in colour. And so the glamour associated with the, the Brazilian team in their um, you know, bright, bright kits. And so that's an important aspect of it. But I think a, a third really significant factor is that they resonated. It kind of links in a way to, to, to colour and race. The black players in the Brazilian side certainly resonated in Brazil, but elsewhere as well in the world, in parts of Africa, certainly, but in parts of Europe, amongst black communities in Europe, there's lots of evidence that they were really, really popular and kind of became kind of idols or role models. I've got a student who's working on the emergence of black players in Ireland, and he's found you know, evidence from really significant players like Paul McGraw and others who write in their autobiographies, you know, 
it was it was the Brazilian side of the seventies which really showed me that I could do it. You know, these were people who looked like me, and these were people who really meant something to me. So I think the Brazilian side of nineteen seventy was kind of global in in that sense, in a way that that no World Cup winning side before was. Yeah, and of course, it was the third time they'd won it as well. Yeah, of course. So they'd already been recognised as a, as, a, as a quality side. And Pele, who had emerged in 58 as a young 17-year-old, by this point was the established kind of star of world football. So he was a symbol of that. But it was a great team beyond that. It was 11 very good players. Yeah. And now talking about iconic uh, World Cup squads, we've got to talk about the Netherlands team of 1974, you know, the team of Johan Cruyff. Were they one of the best teams not to win it? Yeah, again, kind of difficult to do to do the counterfactual history, but I think I think we would probably say yeah, along along with the the Austrian team of the thirties and the Hungarians of the fifties, yeah, and we definitely have to say the the Netherlands team of the uh, of the seventies, particularly seventy four. And again, it wasn't just about their quality as a team, which of course they had. It was it was a number of things. I think we have to remember because of course now uh, the Netherlands are an established kind of leading team in world football. In the 70s, they weren't. I mean, you had a very strong Ajax team, so people knew the players if they were interested in football. But Netherlands did not have a pedigree in the World Cup. They played a couple of times in the 1930s, but they'd not been, they'd not figured before this. And so there was a kind of exoticism, I think, associated with them. And then also it was kind of linked to the colour, the fact that the team played in orange and the fans uh, could be seen because they were in this incredible... So, so that was that kind of a- aspect of things. And then also there was the way they played football. Similarly to the, to the, um, to the Hungarians, this, this kind of uh, uh, progression of this notion of, of total football, which had been developed by uh, Rinus Mikkels and, and, and people like Cruyff and Nieskins and Rep and others really, really kind of developed that in the national team and also in their, in their club size. So I think that was important. But also the players very much, I think, we might compare them with the West German team, you know, who, who won the World Cup in, in 74, who generally were considered quite, and I'm avoiding kind of too many kind of national stereotypes, but were considered very, at this point, relatively conservative, relatively, you know, disciplined, whereas the Dutch team was considered much more relaxed, kind of some, they had slightly longer hair. You know, they'd not experienced, they'd not experienced um, a tournament like this before. So, for instance, they um, enjoyed themselves and it was kind of known that they were enjoying themselves during the time. So they were kind of a much more modern representation of youth in the 1970s. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk a bit about Argentina's role in the World Cup. They host the tournament in 1978, don't they? Again, just for context, why is that so controversial? Well, I mean, I think 78 is one of a number of examples you have um, where um, the choice of the host nation becomes a controversial choice because of the the political nature of the nation. Uh, Argentina at the time was um, was ruled by the military junta and there were all sorts of uh, human rights issues which were known about in across the world and uh, in the media in various parts of the world. So what you do have in, in, in Argentina is quite a significant campaign which is organised by human rights groups and, you know, some political groups. But I think it, we shouldn't dismiss it as a narrow thing. It was very significant. It, it was based in France. And so there were, there were something like 200 local organisations which were kind of pushing to uh, convince the nations in the World Cup to either boycott the World Cup 
or to um, change the venue of the World Cup to somewhere else, or at the very least to make sure um, the issues were much more widely known across the world. And so that's, that, that was a really key moment um, uh, in 78, in probably the, fir- the first example where that really becomes significant in the World Cup. Obviously, it kind of was then replicated in the Olympics at other, at other times as well. So in the end, you didn't. You all the all the teams did attend, apart from you know a couple of the Dutch players didn't. Yeah, Cruyff Johan doesn't Cruyff. go, does he? Cruyff no. didn't go. No, no. I mean, talking about Argentina, Maradona doesn't make his World Cup debut till '82 in Spain, does he? But I think for again for for, for England fans, it's his appearance in 1986 in Mexico that's uh, memorable for certain reasons. What impact did that Hand of God goal have? Yeah, again, it's one of these things which, you know, the memory of it may be different to, to how it was received at the time. I mean, clearly there were lots of people and developments of the press who who, who weren't happy, uh, who regarded him as, you know, simply a cheat. This is a player who's cheated us and the, and the, and the popular press said this very clearly. I think the Sun had a had a you know had a, a had a headline or I think we we effectively you know said this is a you know this this person's a cheat but then other newspapers such as the daily express had a, had a, a headline which said genius cheat because his you know his first goal it was considered completely unacceptable completely you know lack of sportsmanship un-british in inverted commas whereas the second goal was you know remembered as the goal of the century and this incredible dribble through the whole uh, England team and I think though that range of reactions probably did exist amongst people as, uh, and more broadly as well and we, we've got a little bit of a hint of this actually because the the social search organization mass observation which had kind of it's kind of uh, a revised version in the 80s um, did ask people about you know their reactions to to this World Cup and it, it, it asked people a few decades later also about you know what what were your memories of the World Cup and I think if what you find is that people's reactions were quite varied and often quite reasonable we got beaten but then again this happens in sport you know people people do do what they can sometimes to win matches we suffered because of this but then you know we might be on the winning end of this at another time of course alongside that there is an element of hatred there are expressions of xenophobia as well in in those things occasionally but i think it's much more um much more measured than we might think, actually, and much more measured than perhaps we're told um, by the press and others um, now. Yeah, because it's, it's not that long after the Falklands War, is it? So, Yeah, it, it's not. I mean, the, the 82 was the one which was kind of immediately after, but 86, it was still very much in the, in the public memory. So, so I think when it becomes clear England are going to play Argentina... I think the the sun says, you know, uh, bring on the RGs and you know stokes up the, the 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 military metaphor and things like that, which is so, of course, so beloved of the, uh, the was so beloved of the tabloid press to a certain extent, still is, um, and which you know many other countries kind of didn't understand, but you know I didn't kind of realise why there was this focus, um, but yeah, it was it was in it was in the recent memory, so it was it was a factor. But I think what you find then is. When England play Argentina um, in nineteen uh, in nineteen ninety eight, there's some of that still, but it's not any. I don't think it's quite as strong as we expect it to be, and I think the reaction is is rather more measured and kind of people are, are prepared to understand that alongside a different attitude to football and a different kind of cultural view of football and the, the fact that in Argentina Maradona's action was regarded as as just you know very clever. 
and very tricky, you know, we don't see things necessarily in that way. And that, you know, that, that expresses just how, how incredible football is, that we, we recognise different actions in different ways. Yeah. And now we've, we've talked about England quite a lot, but Scotland also qualified for five consecutive finals between 1974 and 1990, didn't they? What, what was the reason for their success in this, this golden age? Oh, they had, they had some very good players. <laughs> I think there's no question about that. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think we're talking at a time in the 70s through to the 80s when, slightly differently from now, I suppose, uh, where, where you've got so many players from, uh, you know, across the world in, in the top divisions in England, where some of the top players in, in English football were Scots. And actually they had been for many decades. So, so some, some really, I mean, Kenny Dalglish is, is one of many examples, but, you know, every team had a number of, um, excellent Scottish players. So they were great players who who never pl- who, who didn't you know even make the the Scottish national team. So I think that's a factor. And I think you keep you need to remember that in one of those tournaments in 1978, the certainly within Scotland, but not just in Scotland, the Scots were highly fancied. There was a feeling that you know possibly possibly with the with a bit of luck and the you know you know the the wind behind the sails that they could. They could go far, possibly win it. Um, and you had you know, the Ali, Ali McLeod who said they could win the World Cup, which is now mentioned all the time. But I think that's important because they did have a great side and they had they did perform, at least in one game, extremely well. But they had a disappointing match in the others, a famous game against them, um, against the Netherlands. You know, it was one of the best teams in the world when the, and the famous goal by Archie Gemmell that a lot of people remember. But it also came at, at around about a time of kind of where, where there was a national referendum in Scotland. So there was... A, an increasing focus on the nation and and kind of football as as an emblem of the nation, and so I think that's a factor there as well. That that around about that time, you know, Scotland again becomes seen on the world stage through international football tournaments, and it happens, you know, as you say, five times in a row, and it's it's really important. The the football team being there, but also you know the supporting fans who develop their own kind of culture of supporting the national team which they almost develop in contrast to the kind of hooliganism which is associated with the English football followers and so that becomes comes a marker of kind of you know how certainly Scots see themselves on the international stage and how they want others to see them as well. Now let's talk about the Americans USA 94 does that change their perceptions of the beautiful game. I mean, I suppose this is tied to a question I've got here from Denise Davidson, which is why was football so slow to catch on in America? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's an interesting question, and I'm, I'm not sure the answer is, is is that straightforward. I think it's, um, I mean, on the face of it, I think you could pro- you could you might say that it didn't change a great deal. Soccer didn't suddenly kind of emerge and find its way alongside the. Um, uh, you know the the big four sports alongside baseball or American football or even basketball after after 1994. So it certainly didn't do that. But I think probably its impact was was slightly more subtle than that. I think you know there's an argument that that the more recent development of uh, major league soccer and more generally kind of um, um, soccer amongst women as well. I mean, we might, might talk about the the US women's team. But a lot of that might be linked to, to people's enthusiasm as kind of young young boys and girls, you know, watching the the 94 um, World Cup in, a, in the US 
it certainly never pushed into the mainstream, but it probably didn't need to. I mean, the the historian um, uh, Joshua Nadel has kind of argued that actually one of its big impacts was on particular elements of, of US society, so particularly on, on the way in which Latinos were seen in the US. Um, and that led to a kind of more nuanced treatment uh, uh, of Latinos um, and actually a way of kind of bringing... Latino culture into the mainstream because there was a lot of support amongst those sorts of, you know, that element of of American society. And so perhaps the impact is more subtle. The World Cup didn't completely change the nature of American sport. I don't think it ever could have done. But I think it probably had an impact in a more subtle way amongst particular elements of of US society and over a longer period of time. Yeah. And briefly there, you mentioned the women's game. I mean, the 1990s sees the start of the Women's World Cup, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you had you had the development of um, the the official uh, World Cup in the nineties. Of course, there as there were with the men's World Cup, there were tournaments before that. So there were unofficial tournaments, you know, in the early seventies, kind of famous World Cup in in Mexico and uh, other events in Italy. And actually, if we're thinking about women's international football, we can go back a lot further. We can go back to the nineteen twenties where. The, the Dick Kerr ladies team played against a French side and that effectively was was branded as an international match between England and France. But yeah, you do have the emergence of a, a, a recognisable kind of, kind, of, kind of World Cup in, in the 90s. And even to the point where I think the particularly the 1999 World Cup, which again was in the US, um, was really important. A key moment. The attendances, the attendances were massive. Um, I think you had an average of... 37,000 attendance in the final, over 90,000. Um, and a lot of the games were played uh, in in general sports stadiums, so in, in, in American football stadium and places like that. So this, again, was a, ca- a case where where football kind of um, w- kind of pushed beyond its, its kind of relatively niche place in American society and became more mainstream. And you had kind of iconic images, particularly, I think, Brandy Chastain's celebration after the winning penalty in the final against China. So I think all those factors kind of link together. And, and I think it's helpful in the US actually to see those two competitions together rather than separating them. I think I think 94, the 94 Men's World Cup and the 99 Women's World Cup both had an impact. Um, although, you know, sometimes it took a, it took a while for it to be to really reach fruition and for it to really be be recognised. Uh, but I think they were both important for um, popularising and in some ways you might, it's a bit of an ugly phrase, but kind of mainstreaming to a degree um, uh, soccer in the US. Now, I've got a few general questions here. I've got one here from Tom Nolan on Twitter, which is, I'm concerned about the expansion of the World Cup to 48 teams from 2026. How have changes to the format been received in the past? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because behind expansion is almost always, you know, the question of satisfying different groups within what FIFA call the FIFA family, <laughs> within the various nations uh, who are represented. And, um, you know, the, the, they have, you know, obviously it's the World Cup has expanded significantly over time. I mean, two, a couple of examples, you know, which are probably significant, 1982, was a time when it when it was expanded to 24 teams. And that was very much part of um, the FIFA president, uh, Joel Havelange's campaign, really. He campaigned to become president in, in 1974 on the basis that that was what he would do, you know, that he would open up 
the World Cup, the premier competition, to more of the African and Asian countries, and that their that the confederations in those parts of the world would would be represented more. Um, and so, obviously, that expansion was popular in the, very much in those parts of the world. It was there was more concern. It was le- it was less popular in, in in perhaps in the established parts of. Uh, of world football where there was a fear that you know okay we'll, we'll open this up and we'll have we'll have teams like as 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 appeared in um 82 kuwait you hadn't appeared before kind of honduras el salvador you know who will absolutely get you know brushed aside and will not be competitive um but that didn't really happen i mean Elvis salvador were hammered in one of their games against um hungary i think it was but actually they could they they did quite well uh, Cameroon, for instance, who played uh, in that World Cup, um, didn't get through the the um, uh, group round, but they didn't lose a game, including drawing against Italy, who who won the World Cup. And then Cameroon then really developed into a, into one of the you know kind of well known, I suppose, uh, World Cup nations. And uh, that was also the World Cup where Algeria famously beat West Germany two one, and would have gone through. And the group, if it wasn't for a kind of disgraceful kind of fixed game between Austria and West Germany, because they knew you know, that the Germans scored and uh, they knew that they would both go through because at that time, the final matches in the group didn't take place at the same time. So they already knew that, uh, you know, they would go through. So so you you actually had the, you know, uh, uh, the fear of what might happen by broadening the competition, I think, was very quickly challenged, I think, by what happened. Uh, a similar case in 1998, there was an expansion there from, from 24 to 32. The interesting thing about what happened in France in 1998 is that that expansion was decided after the French had already been started planning the tournament. So they kind of had to, had to kind of make quick changes and kind of uh, accept that this was a big... But again, the motivation was to open up. There was a, you know, to open up the the premier tournament to a bigger bigger number of countries and many parts of the world where football was incredibly popular and where the game was increasingly being played to to a pretty high standard. So I think by 98, (laughs) there was less concern about the quality, perhaps, of the teams. But but I still, I think maybe the issue we have now is simply, you know, is it, (laughs) you know, how how long does this, this event go on? And, you know, is it, is it? Can we think of it really as an elite tournament if there are so many countries playing in it? Yeah, and how have host nations been selected? Has that process changed a lot? It's been relatively consistent in certain ways. I mean, a competitive kind of bidding process is generally how things have developed. You've tended not to have in the World Cup as many countries who have wanted to to host as um, as has happened in the Olympics, and so certainly early on, you've got a case where where there weren't really many options. I mean, Uruguay was the only real option for thirty thirty four. Italy was the only real nation who could who could put that put that on. So um, yeah, it, it kind of. Uh, has stayed fairly consistent, but then you have had quite a number of um, uh, tensions and disagreements over that because the next World Cup in 1938 in France did lead to quite a few disagreements. And a lot of that was based on the kind of rivalry between the two big blocks at the time, the South Americans, uh, kind of Latin Americans probably more more accurately, and and Europeans. Um, Because there was a kind of um, assumption that the World Cup would alternate 
between those two parts of the world. It didn't happen in '38. The Argentina bidded bid for the World Cup and were well beaten by France and they kind of were very unhappy about that because they had a better infrastructure, better stadia and things like this. And so um, because of that, uh, the Uruguayans who had supported them decided not to come to Europe. You know, they just, well, we're not going to play a World Cup in Europe. The Argentinians didn't play. And, and that kind of process of effectively boy, boycotting competitions did happen quite often. So, so yeah, it could be quite, um, quite a fraught process. The the choice of the of the uh, host nation. Yeah, I mean that ties in very neatly with another question I've got here from Tom Nolan on Twitter, which is how does Qatar twenty twenty two compare with previous competitions in terms of the the criticism levelled at FIFA and the organisers? I mean, we've talked about Argentina seventy eight, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, I think probably as. A tournament like the World Cup does go to different parts of the world. I think these things these things do happen, and I think there um, there have been many occasions. I mean, in many ways, you know, Qatar and and and, and the last World Cup in Russia, you know, we could look at together because there were there there have been and and will continue to be all sorts of criticisms about the decision to um, choose those countries as host nations. But I think, yeah, just just reminding us of the fact that this you know this has has a history and it, this has happened happened previously. I mean, I do think Argentina is probably, it's comparable to what, to, to some of the criticisms with Qatar, but I think actually in what uh, the, the organized nature of the um, campaign uh, against the kind of the anti-World Cup campaign, as it were, um, is actually kind of much more, more significant than uh, has happened in recent years in terms of Russia and Qatar. So I think, I think actually, um, you know, we, we, we have a precedent with these sorts of things and, you know, it has happened before. Now, this is more of a, I guess it's more of a personal question, but do you think the World Cup has lost some of its allure or is it often a case of people's perceptions being coloured by nostalgia? Yeah, I think nostalgia comes into this quite a lot. I mean, when when my kind of image when I think of the World Cup is very much linked to some of my early experiences. So, for instance, in when I immediately think of the World Cup, I think of, for me, you know, the the first World World Cups that I saw, say, nineteen eighty two, and um, and and Tardelli and his celebration and um, the great uh, Brazil team of um, uh, Zico and Falcao and people like that. Of course, he didn't win. Another one of the teams, by the way, the great teams that didn't win the World Cup, Brazil in 1982. And I think of 86 and, you know, you've already mentioned the hand of God and things like that. And and these are kind of, you know, emotional for me and and very much, you know, part of why I, I kind of still, I still love the World Cup and kind of international football. Um, so, so, yeah, there's, there's that. But of course... As we already talked about, that was a period where football itself wasn't at a high point in in Britain. Certainly, you know, in fact, it was kind of a fairly low point. And and so, our memories are affected by 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 that nostalgia and how kind of significant and how great the the event was. But it but it probably wasn't. It probably wasn't as popular as we think it was. And actually. The World Cup probably is more popular than it, than it was at, at that period. Now, there were other issues, kind of issues of corruption and things like this. And, uh, and, and you know, the fact that, that, as you say, kind of almost every, every tournament is, is affected now by um, criticisms of, um, uh, you know, of aspects of the choice of the host and the regime. And, and, and that, it's right that we should consider those things. Um, but I still think, 
there are other things like you know the the, the fact that club football through um through the the rise of the Champions League and things like that, people might suggest well that that has it, it, it's there that the the best football takes place. It's there that international football is really projected on on a kind of world stage. And I think although there's an element of that, I still think the World Cup continues to be important as as something which is which is quite unique, a unique showcase. Um, it is you know it is where you can see some of the best players in the world from lots of different parts of the world uh, kind of on a on a on a kind of global stage for a relatively short period um, and um it still surprises people i think so I, I think there's still something in the world cup but i think i think there's um it faces challenges that was professor matthew taylor of the international center for sports history and culture at de montfort university Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.